0: The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Thank you that we can be here. We thank you for the fall, Lord, and and the beauty, the change of season um, that it represents, Lord, that we get to see another aspect of you, Lord. And um, Lord, as we come together this morning to open your word and to look in Ephesians and consider what it means to walk in love, Lord, I I pray, would you prepare our hearts to hear from you? Would you, uh, Lord, help us to see um, sin or obstacles or things that are in the way of us walking genuinely with you, Lord, that we might experience something of you. And so, um, Lord, lead lead us this morning. Would you be glorified in our time? Would you show us or show yourself to be, Lord, the um, joy of life that we were created to have? So, um, Lord, be at work. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So, recently, there's been a resurgence of what I would say, the uh, WWJD bracelets. So, some of you know what I mean by that, and some of you are like, what's a WWJD bracelet? And so, to explain, a number of years ago, it was probably in the, the prime of my youthhood, um... There were a bunch of bracelets that had have WWJD on it, and it stood for, What Would Jesus Do? And, and so, you know, if you were a, a, a good, strong-believing Christian youth, maybe an adult, I don't know, you would wear, you would wear one of these bracelets, and it, it was kind of an affirmation of, I follow Christ. And also, it represented a reminder to yourself of, as I go about my day and in my life, when I come across different circumstances, what, what would Jesus do? And that is ultimately a, a good thing, a good reminder. I think that's a, a helpful question for us to ask as we think about our lives, as we come across different contexts and, and ask the question, what, what would Jesus do? Um, but in that, too, if we just take that question or take that bracelet and perhaps for an outsider looking at that, that's all they see, that's all they know about Christianity, they could leave and take something, a wrong idea about the faith, that Christianity is about doing what Jesus would do. So therefore, I need to be a good person and, and do good acts and do what Jesus would do, right? And, and so that might be one way that, that that could be misunderstood. Well, as of recently, there's a new bracelet that's HWLF. And you're like, what what does that even mean? I I can't even remember it, you know. But it says, he would love first. And so there's kind of the question, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, you know, just left to ourselves, we could define that however we want to, but they're trying to bring some clarification to say, he would love first, right? And so it, it gets a little bit more dialed in here, which is good. But in this, Often in, I would say, in a Christian culture, or often even around the church, we can make the faith about doing what's right, what's wrong. We can define love however we want to define love and then go and act. And ultimately, it can become about our own individual pursuit of holiness and righteousness rather than actually a walking, living relationship with Christ, of him empowering us. And so as we think about just this mantra of what would Jesus do, or we think about some of our own upraising in and around the church, or perhaps you've been outside the church looking at it and trying to understand what is the Christian faith, what, is, uh, what are these, all these commands and law, what we want to look at this morning is what does it truly mean to walk in love, and so we're gonna be doing that by looking at Ephesians chapter four, verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. And uh, so as I've had opportunity to preach, I've been working through a number of sections through Ephesians 4 and 5, and kind of in the greater theme of the Christian way of life. And what we're doing is in these sections of, of scripture, we're taking the different place that it tells us to walk, to live. And so prior to this, we've looked at walking in a manner worthy of the calling. We've talked about walking in the new self, so don't walk as the Gentiles do. And then here, we come to the third part of this, which is walk in love. And, and these all ultimately build on each other, um, but we're going to look at this walk in love. So, if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 4, um, and I'll, I'll read our text here for this morning. tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. So as we look at this, I'm going to make two uh, primary points about this passage. So the first one is this. Christian transformation is not motivated by one's individual pursuit of righteousness and holiness. Say that again. Christian transformation is not motivated by one's individual pursuit of righteousness and holiness. So Paul opens here in verse 25 and he says, Therefore... And whenever we see the therefore, you need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? It's usually coming in some context, looking back to something. And here, if you go back to verse 24, we are told to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is trying to help uh, illustrate and define what it looks like to put off the old self and then to put on the new self. And so then he proceeds to provide a list here. And this list indicates what we are to stop doing and then what we are to start doing. And in this list, you're going to see that there's, there's 13, uh, actually in this passage, there's 13 commands or imperatives. But then in the list, there's 11 actual specific commands provided there. And they're representative of the necessary change that needs to take place in our lives. And so as we come across a list like this, it's possible that we have a number of varying kind of preloaded responses, right? We just read through that list, and that's a lot of commands, a lot of action, a lot of things that are required of us. And so probably given our different backgrounds, or different contexts we were raised in, or even how we relate to the faith today, maybe we, we think about the list in some different ways. So maybe some of us come to this list with an eager obe- obedience, Right, we're like we might be thinking to ourselves, it's about time that Paul finally gets to some specific applications about how I'm supposed to live. Now I can know what God wants of me. You know, let's let's get to work. Maybe there's an eagerness. You know, just tell me what to do, and I I'll, I'll do it. Right. Perhaps when we go through this list, there's a proud obedience. Others other, other of us might look at the commands and think, I'm doing pretty good. I'm an honest person. Not that angry. I don't steal. For the most part, I don't really swear or say negative things about other people. I don't think I grieve the Spirit. And I'm a nice person who's not defined by bitterness, rage, anger, shouting, slander, right? So maybe we go through that list and we're like, huh, I'm doing all right, you know? feel pretty good. So that would be, we come from kind of like a proud obedience. Perhaps some of us, when we come to this list, we feel, uh, we come more from a perspective of a discouraged obedience, We might feel totally shattered or discouraged by the list, thinking that our old self will never be done away with. And we might think to ourselves, as much as I try, I cannot get away from my old self or patterns. And maybe this list is just another reminder that I fall short, and it leaves me questioning whether or not I may truly be a Christian. So we have some questions, some doubts that I I don't meet the standard here, and it, it brings discouragement. And lastly, the last quarter the last category, maybe some of us come to this with a reluctant obedience. And we're sitting in a place where we, we think to ourselves, I, I don't really care what this list says, <laughs> but I'm just going along with what's expected by my family or what's expand, expected by the surrounding community. And at the, at the end of the day, I think God just cares if I'm trying to be a good person, doing the best I can, given my own challenges and circumstances and limitations. Right? So there's kind of a reluctance. I'll go along with it. So when it comes to a command, we can have a variety of different responses. And I think as we think about this, uh, as we kind of just take note of how do we relate to this list, I want to take a few moments to provide some comments about how we might approach God's commands. And when we when we come to this list in particular, we see that there's some nuances here that that Paul has placed that, that I think is helpful for us when we think about God's commands. So what's inherent in a command is the reality that there is a right and a wrong way of living, right? And that whoever is giving the command basically is saying, you know, when they give a command, there, there's a right or a wrong, you obey or you don't obey, right? It, there's something on the table there. So, for example, if an authority figure, say a parent, gives a command to a child to be nice to their siblings, the parent there is setting a standard by which they can hold their child accountable, right? There's a command, there's, they're directing their child in a certain direction. And this is a good thing, and any good parent is going to desire for their ch- child to be kind to others. And also, any good parent is also go- will want to correct or discourage negative and destructive behaviors even within their family, right? So be nice is, is, is a reasonable command there in that sense. So even though, so, though command is, the command of be nice is, is, is good and reasonable, the question arises, what exactly does it look like to be nice? What does not being nice look like? And with a generic command like this, we are helped by both, I'd say, positive and negative examples so that we can understand the nature of the command. So the parent who wants to further clarify what it means to be nice, they could use uh, some prohibitions, right? They could use a prohibition like Don't hit your brother. Don't tease your sister. Don't take toys out of the baby's hand, right? There's prohibitions that give some clarity there. Or the parent could use affirmations, positive commands along the lines of give your brother a hug. Say something nice to your sister. Share toys with the baby. So these prohibitions and affirmations help define and fill in the generic command of be nice, And they put uh, this generic idea, be nice, into action and give it some tracks to run on. And so when we come and look at this list, we see that Paul is actually helpfully providing a list of both prohibitions, our old behavior, and then affirmations, our new behavior. So what we're to stop doing and what we are to start doing, what we're to put off, what we're to put on. And so we need to ask, why are, are both affirmations and prohibitions necessary? Why does God do this? What's and even maybe a more generic question, what is the purpose of the law? Why is this all here? And so as we come to the purpose of the law, the law exists to reveal to us something of the character of God and something of his standard. The law also exists to show sin to be sin. If you want to go read more about that, go look at Romans 3. But sin is anything that ignores, denies, or runs contrary to God's commands and law. And so as we think about the garden, we see the the presence of both a prohibition and then also affirmations, right? So in the garden, we see one prohibition. He says, don't eat of the fruit of this one tree, right? And if you do, here's a consequence, you will surely die. But also in the garden, we see that there are positive commands, right? There's multiple affirmations. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And here, the positive command tells us something about man's purpose and motivations. While the prohibition uh, in the negative command, it, it places some guardrails to provide accountability, right? To keep things in check. And so the danger in which, there's a danger here when we come, and especially as we think about prohibitions. The danger is that often it can be easier to give more weight to a prohibition found in Scripture. And I think we do this subconsciously. I don't, I don't think we do this like, I'm just going to obey the prohibitions. But I th- here's the danger, is I think the danger to merely obeying prohibitions is that we can come to a false standard of holiness and righteousness. And we can come to have a similar attitude to that of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, thinking more or less before Christ, I've done all the commands, I've obeyed them, I've kept those since my youth, right? And and, we, uh, and, and the reason we could maybe say that or think about that is we go down the list and we think... I don't really I don't I don't murder, I haven't committed adultery, I don't steal, I don't bear false witness, right? And real quickly you can run down the 10 commandments, you can run down a list of prohibitions and be like, check, check, check. Doing pretty good, right? And and in that that's the prohibitions are helpful because they're they're drawing a line in the sand that we're to not cross over. But And also in that, the prohibitions, they're the easiest to define, right? Because they make a behavior in a particular action more black and white. Don't do this. That becomes really clear. But the prohibition also is not the whole law. They're only part of it. And they're there to help bring clarity to our sin condition. And so ultimately, the heart of the law is not defined in a prohibition. The heart of the law is summed up in a positive command, in a command that we are all familiar with: "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself." Right? It puts it in a positive command that that's what we are to be about. And so Paul does a similar thing here. He does not provide the list here, so that we c- and it only include prohibitions lest we be tempted that we think we can become better people and that it would enable us to gain a righteous and holy stand, standard standing before God. I think he provides this list to help move us towards what it means to legitimately walk in the new self created in the image of God. And the reason I kind of like labor this point and spend all this time here is that I think often... For a number of us, and and even especially for Christians, that there's an unchecked tendency to think that because God commands something, that I must be able to obey it by my own resolve and my own strength. And now, it's true that God created mankind to have the potential for obedience, but what's missing or misunderstood is that from the get-go, we don't actually have the right heart the right motivation for obedience. And the reality of the fall is is that we've been made incapable of obeying in a way that is pleasing to God. The fall has made us incapable of obeying in a way that gains us true righteousness and holiness. So many of us can look at this list and get a good idea of what's right and wrong, right? And if we have our WWJD bracelet on, we can say, like, we, we, can, we can know more or less what we think Jesus should do. So though we can have that good idea of right and wrong, we can totally miss the mark when it comes to the heart or the spirit or the motivation to obey the law. And often we shrink the law and we focus on prohibitions by making an attempt to stop sinning or to just minimize sin. and becomes a battle of sin of just, let's not do the negative, let's not do the negative right? And so it's not enough for us to simply know right from wrong, to know good behavior and bad behavior, but rather what we need is a new heart, a new motivation for obedience. So it's in this that Christian transformation is not merely to stop sinning. Our sanctification is not to stop behaving in certain ways, but rather it's to start living in a different way, with a new heart and a new motivation. And in our text this morning, we find both of these. We see the prohibition, but it doesn't just leave us there, because that's not enough. It actually moves us to the, to the affirmation, to the positive command of what we are to look like, what our life is to, to, be, uh, yeah, to take the image of. And so, as we read down through this list, we see that there, there are both here. And he says, we look at the first one, for example. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Right? So old, old, old behavior, the prohibition, put away a falsehood. What do, we, what do we put on? What's the new behavior? Speak the truth with our neighbor. We go on. Second one. Uh, don't allow anger or bitterness to grow and fester, causing us to sin. Right? So don't allow anger to be there. Well, what, what's, what's the affirmation? We are to address anger before the sun goes down, right? We are to be diligent to notice when, when, when anger sh- shows up and to deal with it. Next one, it says, more or less, don't steal. What's the new behavior? Instead, labor, doing honest work with your hands. Next one down, don't let, corrupt, uh, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion. So, Old behavior. Stop with the corrupting talk, new behavior. Talk in a way that builds up, that edifies, that encourages. Verse 30, don't grieve the spirit. And, and the implied new behavior, there's walk sensitive to the spirit. And then lastly, we see put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. All that is malice. And new and said we were to be kind, tenderhearted, compassionate, forgiving one another. So, kind of just having run down that list, what is it that all these new behaviors, all these positive commands have in common? At minimum, it's clear that we are to put others before ourselves, right? But in that, I'd say even more so, Paul, he's concerned that we have a proper reason and motivation for what we do so I think it's important that we notice that for each of these affirmations, for each of these positive commands, that the sentence doesn't end there where, where I left it on the first pass. But Paul provides a corresponding reason, a motivation, an end goal for why we are to obey, right? So we're to put away falsehood, we're to speak truth with our neighbor, for we are members of one another. And this, this passage brings a reference point to what, hap- what Paul said right before, that we are one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. That as a Christian, there's a unity and love for one another that, that defines us as a people. So there's, there's a community fo- focus here. When we see that for we are members of one another. Also similarly, go to the next one. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. So there's something about anger that anger opens, opens up the door for the devil to do work. The devil doesn't place anger in our hearts. Anger is there. Anger comes out because of our fallen condition. But what anger does is it opens the door. And where we know that there's anger, there's division in families and communities. And there are real problems there. And the devil can get in and wedge open, split open that, that division, Right? And use it in a way that doesn't protect the integrity of what God intended for community and relationships to be. So we see some of the motiv- motivation of why we need to deal with anger, right? Given our sin condition. Next one, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And I was greatly helped by one of our um, former pastors here, Jed Brown. He, would ask, he asked me the question, when is the thief no longer a thief? And often, you know, we could think about it, it, a thief is no longer a thief when he stops stealing, right? No, not according to this passage. A thief is no longer a thief when he begins to labor and work so that he can give away generously. You think about the life of Zacchaeus, right, who's, you know, a legalized thief. But we see that when his heart is transformed, he gives all away generously. He moves from one category to another. He doesn't become, you know, not become a tax collector or a thief when he just stops doing that. But he steps into something new in that he begins to look and to share with anyone in in need. Next, 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Only uh, Only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So again, it's one thing to refrain from negative language or destructive comments, but it's another thing to proactively seek to build up and give grace, right? So any of us can catch our tongue and maybe prevent ourselves from saying something harmful. But what does God require? What is Paul pushing us towards? That we actively look to give Edifying, building up words that is grace to those who hear. It does something to their soul when we can speak and affirm and and love others. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this, this command stands out a little bit differently from the rest, right? And in some sense, some people connect this one to the verse of do not let corrupting talk come out of your mouth or some people try to connect it to think about you know all this list as a whole that if we are not if we are not walking in this new way of life that we're going to be grieving the holy spirit but the point here is that in some way in our old way in our old way of life we are grieving the holy spirit and and in this the warning the motivation is is as a Christian, if we're going to walk in our old way of life, that is grieving to the Holy Spirit. If and and if you just even want to look at the verse above it that if we're going to let corrupting talk come out of our mouth, right? That's going to tear people down. That grieves the spirit. And and kind of the motivation that Paul puts here is why would you grieve the spirit who is the one who is the seal of your redemption one day? Why would you grieve the spirit of the one who is the deposit, the guarantee that you will enter into eternal life with Christ, right? And so here, there's, there's a motivation that, that we, we want to be pleasing to God, which is gonna come later in the passage. We don't wanna grieve the Holy Spirit. And so we see, see a motivation there. In the last, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So we, we are to be kind, compassionate, forgiving, because this is who God is. And because that's who God is, that is what God does. And so if we are to step in the new self and to image Christ and to be like him, then in that, we're going to put away these other things. That's, that's the motivation. So, again, having gone down this list to look at kind of the prohibitions and the affirmations, the, positive, the negative commands and the positive commands, and now looking at the motivations, the heart, the desire that, that is here, what is it that all these new behaviors ultimately have in common? And it's, I think it's this, that living in holiness and righteousness is ultimately... Uh, Uh, living in, sorry, living in holiness and righteousness is ultimately an orientation that comes from right motivations. So living in holiness and righteousness is ultimately God-focused and it's other-focused. Living in holiness and righteousness is not, to put it negatively, is not self-focused. And I think I think this is certainly true for me. When we are self-focused, we approach the law in a totally wrong way. And there's a a book that we've gone through a number of times as a church called The Gospel-Centered Life. And it helps to understand that in the Christian life and how we relate to the law, when we are self-focused, there's kind of two different ditches that we can fall in. And the first ditch is that we try to measure up. When we're self-focused, we we can be we can try to measure up and we can be focused on our own legalism, right? We can be focused on legalism or performing. We can be focused on what we're trying to do to attain God's holiness and righteousness. And really in that that's downplaying the holiness of God in order to build up our holiness. And that's false false footing. The other way that we can do it, the other ditch is we we can attempt to change or redefine or ignore the standard. And we can try to live however we desire to live. And the language that we use for this is is license. So license means freedom, that I'm going to just pursue freely to do whatever I want to do. Or another word that gets used in gospel-centered life is pretending. And we downplay our sin and our sin condition in order to escape The uncomfortable reality that we are not righteous or not holy. So, when it comes to the law and the standard, we have two options. We're going to either try to measure up or we're going to try to minimize it and do away with it. But the reality is is that we fall short in both cases. And our tendency and our fallen condition is to pursue holiness and righteousness according to our own standard. We define what we think is good and right. We justify our own actions and behaviors before God and man. So the question for each of us is, what is your tendency? Which way do you lean? Do you lean more towards a performing legalism mindset that you think you can become holy like God? Or do you lean more towards this idea of a license? You pursue freedom. You're pretending to be something that you're not, or are you are pretending that the law doesn't exist? What's your orientation? Which, which way do you go? And if we're honest, there's probably aspects of both that are going to show up, that we're, as fallen people, we're doing, we're interacting in both of these at different times. But in this, these are both self-focused approaches to dealing with the law. And they both, both miss the point of the law. And what we really need is to see how God has determined for us to live. So having just gone through the above list of what it looks like to, to walk in the new self, self, Paul leads us here to a summary statement. It's the essence and the heart of what it means to walk as a Christian, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to walk in new life. And this is where we come to verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here's, here's the second point. Christian transformation is motivated to walk in love by following the example and model of Christ. So Christian transformation is motivated to walk in love by following the example and model of Christ. So again, in verse 1 we see another therefore, right? So everything that we've just looked at, all these commands given all all that was just stated above, Paul then provides two commands here. He says, "Be imitators of God, as beloved children, and the second command, walk in love as Christ loved us. So as we look at this first command, be imitators of God. Kind of the question comes up: how in the world are we able to imitate the one and only holy God of the universe? Isn't this like kind of a presumptuous command? That he thinks we can do that. And in fact, this is the only place in scripture where we are directly commanded to imitate God. Now, there are other places where the idea is certainly supported, and you could go back to um, Leviticus 19 and see the command, Be holy, for I am holy. So this is not, not a new idea here. And actually above, in, in verse 24, we see as a new creation, Paul reminds us that we are created in the likeness of God. As image bearers, we are created in the image of God and that means that our full end, our purpose is to be like God. Not to be God, right? To be like God. There's a very big difference here in the sense that the God of the universe, God is always first. We are second and we will always be second. We will never surpass God. We will never become equal footing with him. But at the same time, that we can become like God, we are created in his image. So there is something, as God is, we are created to be and to walk in a similarity to who he is in his character. Ultimately, it's only through Christ that we can become a new creation. And through him, the indwelling, in the indwelling spirit, it becomes possible to imitate God. So how are we to imitate God. Well, this is where the second command comes in, right here. How are we to imitate God? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So, if we are to be imitators of God, then we must walk in love. And if we are to walk in love, then we must look to Christ to see what that looks like, how to do that. So, how is it that God is love How is it that Jesus embodies and exemplifies God's love? Well, the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament certainly supports the truth that God is love. But I think the real key to understanding how that is the case is exemplified in the person and work of Jesus. So as mentioned earlier, Jesus Jesus sums up the law and the prophets by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, as we think about how it is the God is love, Jesus is the perfection and the fulfillment of the law and prophets. He is the one who embodies and exemplifies perfect obedience to these two commands and we see this on his display and we see this on display in his love for the Father and his love for the world and I think a helpful place to go and look at this and to see this just like in a marvelous way is in John 17. And there in John 17, we see the love that Jesus has for the Father. Jesus, who claims and proves himself to be God, he gives us a sneak peek of this incredible reality of how God is love. He speaks of a love and a glory he had with the Father before the world existed. So how is it that God can be love, right? Love is an action. Love is a verb, right? There's songs about that. But how is it that God can be love unless he has a relationship within himself? And it's through a triune, Trinitarian relationship within himself Father, Son, and Spirit, all living in perfect, harmonious, united love for one another, that we can get a glimpse of how God's nature is love. Love is central to God's character. And God has had eternal joy from eternity past and eternity future within his nature. So when we say God is love, it makes the most sense in a Trinitarian concept of God, right? Right? Is you have the Father, Son, and Spirit relating in love to one another. And so we see that Jesus' love for the Father is on full, full display. He is the example of what that looks like. But then we also see Jesus' love for the world. We see his love for the church, love for his people. And this is also evident in, John's, in the same chapter, John 17. And John seventeen twenty six says this, as Jesus prays to the Father, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Do you catch that? What a beautiful thing that is, that the love with which you have loved me. So he's talking to the Father, the love with which the Father has loved Christ. Christ is then the love that is going to be in us. It's the love that Christ has for us, but we are being invited into this love, loving relationship of God. And it's Jesus, it's his love for a lost and dying world in which he would subject himself to death and wrath and separation from God, which is the penalty of sin, so that we might enter into a loving relationship with the triune God of the universe. A loving relationship that Jesus experiences presently. It's a loving relationship that Jesus has experienced from eternity past into eternity future. And so we see that Jesus embodies this love in that he loves the Father perfectly and has for all eternity past. And he loves the world perfectly. And he invites us into that ourselves. And so Jesus is the perfect human expression of sacrificial love. And so for us to imitate God, we have to become a new creation. That we might image God by walking in in sacrificial love. So the heart and the motivation behind all of these imperatives that we've seen in this passage is that Christians are to sacrificially love As God sacrificially loves. And there's something here deeply important about the body of Christ, about the church, and how it images God. This kind of sacrificial love is intended to radically transform a community in righteousness and holiness. And we need to be reminded that righteousness and holiness is not an individual pursuit, righteousness and holiness is a relational pursuit. It's done in relationship with God, in the context of relationships in the church and a lost world. I think that to the degree that we make our, our sanctification, our growth process, such an individual thing is actually to our own damage. Because our sanctification can only take place in the context of a God who is love, in the context of a church that is to image Him and display that. And the greatest form and expression of love is that which is sacrificial, that which is costly. Why is this? Because the sacrifice, the cost, is a statement of value aimed at the object of our love. So you think about this. For example, why do men break the bank and break their back to purchase a valuable ring for their fiance? Because it's a statement of value upon their bride to be that is reflected in the costly sacrifice. Now, I, I know some of us want to be like, "It's just a marketing thing. You know, they just want your money." I'm not saying you have to do that, but the principle is there. You know, get the tattoo for all I care. <laughs> but the but the heart is there. The sacrifice is there, and it images something, right? So then the question is, why does Christ break his body? And give his life to redeem a people for himself. Because it's a statement of value upon his people. And it's a display of the deep ocean of love that exists within the nature of God. The costly sacrifice of Christ is a display of his love. It's the motivation that leads him to obedience. And it's what leads him to walk in love as the perfect image bearer. And this is mind-blowing. This is the example that we are set. This is the heart of God, and this is to become our heart. Loving sacrifice is pleasing to God. Why? Because it's central to His character. It's central to His own internal joy. So we we are to walk in a loving sacrifice. So that's why speaking the truth, addressing anger, generously sharing, speaking edifying words being kind, compassionate, forgiving. We are called to do these things because it points to the character of God. And it's, I think what we need to believe is it's the only way that we are going to experience life and joy as we walk as image bearers. So as we continue to learn and walk in sacrificial love, I think it's how we are going to experience the life and the joy that God has intended for us. And it's often the case that we are more blessed to take part in giving rather than just merely receiving. So how is it that the gospel frees us up to sacrificially give away our lives? What is it that led Christ to sacrificially give away his life? And I think it's in... Three little words here. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Th- this is one of those small statements that I almost skipped over when preparing this week. But then when I saw it, the language of beloved child is actually what frees us to sacrificially love and give ourselves away. This identity language is what grounds us to to sacrificially walk in love, and I think this identity, we we need to understand something about that. Um, For me, back in high school, you know, you experience all the different labels that get thrown around in a high school. You can think of jock, you know, punk. We had emos back then. I don't know if they're still around. Um, Skaters, right? And there's a term that would get used, especially with the skaters, and it was called a poser. Anyone know a poser, right? An a poser is someone that would try to act as if they are something, when in reality they are not, right? So they'd wear, you know, certain skate shoes and apparel, but in the end, the real skaters would call these pretend skaters posers, right? They looked the part, but they didn't actually embody the substance of the part that they looked, right? And so, to try and be an imitator of something without the substance is to be in a place of great insecurity. It's probably the worst thing to be called a poser, right? You're exposed. You're a fraud. But the reality of the fallen humanity apart from Christ is that we are all posers. Often performing or pretending to be something that we are not. And it might be that some of us have been going along with Christianity, but in reality, we have not been born again. We have not surrendered our life to Christ, dying to self. And if this is you, it's impossible for you to ever find right standing before God. Because there's nothing that you can do to be pleasing to him in and of yourself. You'll never experience the joy and freedom of what it means to walk in new life motivated by love until this happens. Until there's a surrender, until there's a heart change. You must surrender your life, your plans, your will, your dreams, your desires to God. Recognizing your own sinful independence and nature and trust fully in the personal work of Christ. Christ is the only one who can create a new life within us. He is the only one who can make us a beloved child. And when he makes us a beloved child, he brings about a transformation that will actually make us in position holy and righteous and will actually make us in our character holy and righteous. Not perfect, but he will change our motivations. He will take away our poser status and make you the real deal. Christ is the imitator of God because he is God, and, and it is only through relationship with him that we can be granted sonship or daughtership or daughterhood, I don't know what that word is, but granted sonship as a beloved child. So it's through faith and trust in Christ alone that we are born again and given a new heart with new desires. And Why is this so important? Because in this, we are given a new identity that cannot be taken away. We talked about the Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption. That's a guarantee of deposit. We are freed from the temptation to think that we must earn our own righteous and holy standing before God. We are freed from the t- temptation to redefine reality or morality because we'll never meet the standard. And in this, we are ultimately free to sacrificially give away our lives and love others. And a few weeks ago in a sermon, the illustration was put before us that God, in His love and His grace upon us, He's provided a dump truck of grace <laughs> that's going to fall upon us. And there's an infinite line of dump trucks that are going to come, and He's going to keep pouring grace upon grace upon grace. So if we understand our status as a son, as a child, we can give it away because there's another dump truck coming. We can sacrificially give over and over again because we have a God who's going to give over and over again. And we believe that and trust that. That radically transforms our life. That radically frees us up to love someone else outside of our circumstance. To know that God will meet us again and again. Everything Christ did was out of love for the Father and love for mankind. He was not focused on himself or his own glory, though he's deserving of of all glory for sure. He was and is surrendered to the will of the Father, and he's lovingly, sacrificially pursued the joy and salvation of a lost and helpless world. So, when we come to this list above, I think it's good for us to slow down and prayerfully ask God to reveal where we are not walking in love. And I think we need to ask him to give us a right heart and a motivation to walk in the new self. And in faith, we need to act in obedience and put off and put on. We need to speak the truth. We need to deal with our anger. We need to build others up with our speech. We need to walk in the Spirit, be kind and compassionate. But in the end, Christian transformation is motivated to walk in love by following the example and model of Christ. So let's pray that God would continue to do this work in our lives and that we would be further conformed to the image and person of Christ. That we would sacrificially put God and our neighbor before ourselves, all to his glory, knowing that he will infinitely provide for us and our needs along the way. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are love. Thank you that you have created us. Lord, that through Christ you have provided a way back to have a relationship with you. Lord, thank you for inviting us to be image bearers, to participate in your love. Help us to truly believe that that is where life and joy is found. Lord, would you show us where we are relying on ourself, on our own righteousness? And Lord, would you help us to depend on the righteousness of Christ provided? And Lord, would you help us to see Lord, that we um, do not walk by ourselves in our own strength, but we walk through Christ in us who is our strength, Lord. Help us to be a sacrificially loving community, Lord, that brings glory to your name. Help us to strive that end. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for the work that you've done and ask that you would continue to do more still.
0: Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.